You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Welcome to the second in our Cyber and Privacy podcast series. This one is about ransomware, geopolitical tension, and the race to regulate. I'm Megan Brown, partner in our telecom media and technology practice here at Wiley. And as before, I'm joined by our colleague, Lynn Brown, special counsel in our practice, uh, helping us with cybersecurity and uh, national security. So let's get started. Thanks, Lynn, for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So the news is full of cyber threats, and we've been looking at a rapidly changing landscape, including geopolitical developments, increase, such as the increasing concern about what appears to be a looming Russian invasion of Ukraine. You and I have seen the government dialing up its warnings and really sounding the alarm. So give us some thoughts about what we're seeing. Well, I think companies need to pay particular attention to the signals the government is sending about cyber threats as tensions escalate between the U.S. and Russia over Ukraine. You're right, the government has repeatedly urged critical infrastructure in particular to immediately implement cybersecurity protective measures. Just recently, CISA Insights issued a warning to implement those measures now to protect against potential critical threats. This pointed to a series of malicious cyber incidents, such as the deployment of potentially destructive malware against public and private entities in Ukraine as a possible precursor to what could happen to U.S. critical infrastructure as well if Russia actually invades Ukraine. In mid-January, the FBI, CISA, and NSA issued a joint cybersecurity advisory, specifically warning about Russian state-sponsored cyber threats to critical infrastructure. Recently, our Canadian and British counterparts have issued similar warnings. So the threat to critical infrastructure is global and rises as tensions increase over what looks like an imminent invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, I think we've seen several federal agencies act as amplifiers for this messaging. So what should companies, as a practical matter, be thinking about right now? Well, they need to take these cyber threats seriously. At a high level, critical infrastructure organizations should immediately strengthen their cybersecurity posture, patch all systems ASAP, prioritize patching known exploited vulnerabilities, implement multi-factor authentication, and basically surge support to cybersecurity now. Yeah, I think it's it's challenging for companies reading these advisories because the list of tasks you have identified has has always been part of basic cyber hygiene and I think now it's it's sort of putting it on steroids or sort of dialing it up. So what else should companies do at this point? Well, I would suggest they go through the joint cybersecurity advisories the government has issued in the last 6 months about state-sponsored threats to critical infrastructure and Focus in particular on the detection, incident response, and mitigation sections of those reports. They should focus on the joint cybersecurity advisory issued by the FBI, CISA, and NSA on Russian state-sponsored cyber threats to critical infrastructure. There's a wealth of information for the cybersecurity and network defenders in those advisories, and prioritizing implementation of those recommendations now can help reduce the risks posed by these threats. They should also keep in mind and, and utilize the catalog of known exploited vulnerabilities that CISA has identified and that is available on its website. It's, it's a great resource to have. 
Yeah, I think one thing uh, before we start talking about ransomware in particular, you know, we've seen folks effectively use their trade associations, uh, the information sharing and analysis centers. So if companies don't have relationships uh, with such organizations, they should think about getting them because I think that's been a, an effective filter by the government for some of this information. Um, so let's talk about ransomware. We hit on it in our last podcast. It's a target rich environment. So uh, which, which sectors or industries do you consider to be right now most at risk for ransomware? Well, definitely critical infrastructure and the defense industrial base, but we've also seen a proliferation of ransomware attacks against the healthcare sector, telecommunications, and state or local government as well. So we've seen shifts in how the federal government is approaching ransomware, including some public discussions about you know, recovery of ransom payments, which is somewhat novel. Uh, about a month after a recent ransomware attack, the FBI successfully seized you know, $2.3 million from a Bitcoin wallet that bad actors had used to collect the ransomware payment they got out of Colonial Pipeline. Talk a little bit about what they did there. Well, the FBI and other government partners had identified a virtual currency wallet that malicious cyber actors used to collect payment from the victim company. By reviewing the Bitcoin ledger, law enforcement was able to track multiple transfers of Bitcoin and identify the specific address where the ransomware had been transferred to. Using the private key, which is roughly equivalent to a password to a specific Bitcoin address, the FBI was able to seize the funds from the Bitcoin wallet using criminal authorities and return the recovered ransomware payment to Colonial Pipeline. So I'm sure this is not the first time the government has tried to do this. Uh, why do you think the government was successful here in recovering part of that ransom payment for Colonial Pipeline? I think the collaborative nature of the Colonial Pipeline investigation and ransomware recovery efforts cannot be understated. Leveraging different agencies' legal authorities and technical capabilities, the government succeeded in depriving a cybercrime group of its ill-gotten gains and sending a message to others engaged in ransomware attacks that the government will use domestic and international partnerships to protect the private sector and the American public. The Colonial Pipeline seizure of ransomware payments was arguably just the beginning. Shortly after the government successfully seized 2.3 million, DOJ announced that the government had also recovered 6.1 million in ransom payments made by Kaseya, a multinational information technology software company after its systems were attacked by ransomware in July of 2021. This particular ransomware strain has wreaked havoc worldwide, extorted millions of dollars from victim companies, and inflicted significant damage to multiple sectors of the economy. So what happened to Kaseya, Lynn? Like Colonial Pipeline, Kaseya quickly notified the FBI, which coordinated with several other agencies like CISA, Treasury, and State, as well as numerous international law enforcement or intelligence agencies. Working cooperatively with Kaseya, the government was able to determine which of Kaseya's customers were impacted and share information with Kaseya about what the adversaries were doing. Later, the FBI was able to obtain a decryption key that allowed it to unlock the hostage data and stop the bad actor's operation. By again using a criminal seizure warrant, the government was able to obtain over 6.1 million in funds traceable to ransom payments. Public-private partnerships, timely reporting to law enforcement, and international cooperation all contributed to discovering the decryption keys and recovering the ransom payments. 
So what do you think this suggests going forward about ransomware and recovery? The government, I think, will continue to aggressively combat ransomware attacks by depriving the bad actors of monetary gains or providing victim companies with decryption keys when it can. I think one of the real highlights of 2021 is the government's seizure of ransom proceeds from the virtual currency wallets of malicious cyber actors. It turned the tables, sent a powerful message that illegal cryptocurrency transactions are not outside of law enforcement range, and set the stage later for recovering decryption keys and providing those keys to victim companies. So one of the things that's frustrating about the ransomware problem is it's obviously a global problem. You know, bad guys operate with impunity in a lot of places around the world. You were at the FBI for many years and saw firsthand this sort of cooperation and how it works or perhaps how it doesn't between international partners. We have helped companies deal with cross-border evidence requests, um, work with the Department of Justice under MLATS, Mutual Legal Assistance Treaties, and now the Cloud Act. You know, Lynn, what do you think the U.S. needs to do to enlist more cooperation from our foreign partners? Well, I think there is a tremendous amount of good cooperation with foreign partners, and the U.S. is trying to leverage international cooperation to disrupt the ransomware ecosystem and address safe harbors for ransomware criminals. Ransomware, as you've noted, is frequently a transnational crime. The criminal threat actors themselves are often abroad when they commit their crimes using foreign infrastructure and money laundering networks around the world to facilitate their attacks. In my experience, the FBI enjoys rather good cooperation from its law enforcement and intelligence agency partners throughout the world. In several recent high-profile cyber cases, the government has been carefully sequencing its arrest and prosecution of several malicious cyber actors with foreign partners. This has involved extensive behind-the-scenes cooperation with our international counterparts, not all of whom want to be publicly named as helping the U.S. government. So you saw firsthand how collaboration works with the FBI um, from the private sector. I personally have seen a real shift in how a lot of companies approach Working with the FBI, I think the FBI has engaged in a lot of meaningful outreach and worked really hard to build trust. How do you suggest that we enhance public-private partnerships while, you know, the government is increasing enforcement actions and really taking steps towards more regulatory requirements? That worries me as we try and maintain and grow these partnerships. I've certainly seen an amazing evolution in the FBI's public outreach efforts and attempts to meaningfully partner with the private sector. From pushing out products like joint cybersecurity advisories with CISA or NSA or industry alerts to holding classified threat briefings for critical infrastructure or other potential cyber targets, the FBI has really tried to leverage its unique authorities and capabilities against cyber adversaries. I think the key is information sharing and collaboration. So the government is sending a lot of signals to the private sector right now. Uh, we discussed the CISA playbooks in our last podcast, which are part of this increased federal attention to certainly government and now also private cybersecurity. The president issued an executive order 14028 for our listeners to strengthen the nation's cybersecurity. And it, while it principally applies directly to the federal civilian government uh, agencies and their contractors, uh, a subsequent memorandum directs the creation of various performance goals for critical infrastructure, which are starting to pop out and, and industry is seeing and reacting to them. 
uh, senior officials have strongly suggested those performance goals are going to set a standard of care for private sector companies. What other signals is the government sending, Lynn? Well, with respect to the CISA playbooks, I think it's important to keep in mind that CISA expressly encourages all critical infrastructure entities and private sector organizations to review them to benchmark their own vulnerability and incident response practices. The playbooks have been issued in the midst of an increase in federal government enforcement attention uh, to cybersecurity, and, and I think the government holds them as a model of, of what good practices look like. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco announced in the fall that DOJ is launching a civil fraud initiative to combat new and emerging cyber threats to critical and sensitive information systems. DOJ is putting companies on notice that it will not hesitate to use its civil enforcement authorities to pursue government contractors when they fail to follow required cybersecurity standards. Using the False Claims Act, DOJ seeks to hold accountable entities or individuals that knowingly provide deficient cybersecurity products or services, knowingly misrepresent their cybersecurity practices, or knowingly violate obligations to monitor and report cybersecurity incidents and breaches. False Claims Act litigation has already begun to focus on cybersecurity and IT security. And as mandates and certifications multiply, corporate exposure will only increase. So we've been encouraging organizations to think about how, you know, their incident response processes compare to these expectations. You and I have discussed, I, I don't love the tone coming out of DOJ about civil fraud for cyber, but senior government officials have made clear that they expect companies to follow the government's lead here. Do you agree with me that the government is sending mixed signals? I mean, I find it potentially quite confusing given the what seem to be competing goals here from the government. Well, you've got a good point. While the government publicly pushes for greater cooperation with the private sector to combat the wave of ransomware attacks, certain departments and agencies are increasingly flexing their enforcement and regulatory muscles. The government has repeatedly sent signals about what it considers to be the relevant standard of care. Either way, enforcement actions for cybersecurity deficiencies and sanctions designations are just beginning. Regulating cryptocurrencies, mandating cyber incident reporting, or banning ransom payments outright might be next. So federal regulators are also getting into the act. I think most federal agencies are feeling a lot of pressure to step in and address cyber. Uh, for example, we've discussed, you know, I expect the Securities and Exchange Commission to beef up its regulations, building on its prior guidance documents, which frankly were not super specific. You know, they, they talked about disclosure, they talked about board engagement, but they weren't terribly specific. I agree. The, the SEC has been very active on cybersecurity, and SEC Chairman Gensler recently gave a speech at Northwestern in Chicago where he talked about the how the SEC is working to improve the overall cybersecurity posture and resiliency of the financial sector. He described the FBI and CISA as the captains of team cyber, but noted that the SEC has a role to play as well. In fact, he and his staff are putting together recommendations for a consistent cyber risk disclosure framework for public companies and a protocol for updating investors when cyber events occur. So, yes, the, the SEC is certainly in the process of expanding its cybersecurity rules in the financial sector. 
So the SEC, you're right, they're looking at regulations and additional mandates, but they've also been, you know, aggressive in cybersecurity inquiries, right? They have followed up on solar winds and other major incidents and have not been shy about bringing enforcement actions. The agency recently sanctioned eight firms in three actions for alleged failures in their cyber practices that resulted in email account takeovers by bad actors exposing PII of, of customers and clients at the firms. After the guidance and recommendations in the CISA playbooks, I think that that set of guidance and best practices could be helpful for explaining how reasonable cybersecurity standards, standards were followed. And I think that's gonna be really important to inform the SEC's own cybersecurity rules because with a lot of this, you know, we're, we're worried about duplication, fragmentation. And so, you know, I think looking, as you've said before, Lynn, at the CISA playbooks, and at other guidance documents can help explain to the SEC why a certain set of practices were, were reasonable. Our colleagues that work on sanctions have also been busy with Treasury and OFAC. Lynn, what should the private sector know there? Well, recently in, in September of 2021, OFAC issued an updated advisory to highlight the sanctions risks associated with ransomware payments in connection with malicious cyber-enabled activities. OFAC advised that companies that facilitate ransomware payments to cyber actors on behalf of victims, so we're talking about financial institutions, cyber insurance firms, and companies involved in digital forensics and incident response, risk violating OFAC regulations. Because the U.S. government strongly discourages all private companies and citizens from paying ransom or extortion demands, Treasury recommends focusing on strengthening defensive and resilience measures to prevent and protect against ransomware attacks. Yeah, and I mean, I I found this repeated advisory in September a little frustrating. All the companies in this space understand the risks, and that's why there's you know diligence in place. But I I, I didn't find this to be particularly helpful. It was more of a, a wagging of the finger. I thought obviously companies take some risks, but being hit with uh, a ransomware attack puts you in a nearly impossible position. So let's talk a little bit about Treasury's enforcement actions. Is, is Treasury stepping those up? Yes, OFAC is encouraging financial institutions and companies that engage with victims of ransomware attacks to implement a risk-based compliance program to mitigate exposure to sanctions-related violations. In determining an appropriate enforcement response, OFAC reviews the existence, nature, and adequacy of a sanctions compliance program. OFAC also considers whether the ransomware attack was reported to the appropriate U.S. government authorities and the nature of the cooperation with OFAC, law enforcement, or other relevant agencies. OFAC has said that it would be more likely to resolve apparent violations involving ransomware with a non-public response when the affected party took mitigation steps and reported the ransomware attack to law enforcement as soon as possible. So that is interesting. John Carlin over at DOJ recently gave a speech about increasing corporate enforcement. And he said that voluntary self-disclosure of a potential sanction or export control violation, along with extensive cooperation, TBD what that means, and strong remediation could result in no fine and no monitoring obligations. Yes, and according to John Carlin's speech, DOJ will increasingly be using its enforcement initiatives to change corporate behavior so that effective compliance programs are put in place. To do this, DOJ is 
right now surging resources for corporate enforcement and is redoubling its commitment to white collar enforcement. Companies should consider their privacy, national security, cybersecurity, and supply chain programs in light of this warning. So there's a lot going on related to incident reporting, and I think this really flows nicely from this discussion about working with the government and voluntary disclosures. Last year, we saw a lot of cyber incident reporting and ransomware-related proposals in Congress. Do you have a thought, Lynn, on where we're eventually going to end up? Well, I don't think there's a consensus yet in the government about prohibiting ransomware payments or mandating cyber incident reporting. By highlighting the risk of sanctions associated with making a ransomware payment, I think OFAC is sending a strong message against making ransomware payments. This reflects the argument that payment is part of the problem. The theory is that if companies can't or won't pay, then criminals will go elsewhere. The government, however, is not uniformly of this view. The FBI discourages ransomware victims from paying ransom, but strongly encourages victims to report ransomware incidents. DOJ favors mandatory cyber incident reporting to give the government a more complete view of the cyber threat environment and the risks the cyber threats pose to some of our nation's most sensitive entities and information. Meanwhile, policy debates continue about whether to ban ransomware payments and require mandatory cyber incident reporting. Yeah, I think in the absence of a federal incident reporting mandate, what's been interesting is to see this blossoming of proposals at various federal agencies, right? The Federal Trade Commission has a new proposal out to mandate incident reporting that I think, frankly, is duplicative of the patchwork of state breach reporting obligations. The Federal Communications Commission is looking at revising its reporting obligations related to a category of information called CPNI. And so I think you're going to see these, these smaller incident reporting mandates pop up in the absence of, of consensus-based federal incident reporting mandate of the kind that were debated last year that would have given DHS sort of broad incident reporting regulatory authority. So lots to be seen in 2022, but I think there is this, there's going to be this continued push towards incident reporting of some flavor that may actually, from my view, kind of make things worse because you'll have this, you know, fragmentation of incident reporting across different agencies. So in light of all these things we've talked about, how do you see the relationship between the federal government and the private sector evolving this year? Well, I think you've raised some very good points. So Look for more tension with the government and possibly more confusion about federal standards as we move further into 2022. I think the government would sincerely like to increase public private partnership, particularly with those in critical infrastructure. But the national security risks created by cyber intrusions, particularly against the defense industrial base and the toll that ransomware has been taking on the economy have never been more clear and agencies with authority to do so are issuing regulations or engaging in enforcement activity to try to combat cyber threats in their own way under their own authorities. So we've been giving a lot of thought to how companies can protect themselves. I mean, we've we've worked here at the firm with critical infrastructure and others for years on cyber incident response planning, relationship building with the government. Um, obviously, this kind of has to pivot recently towards ransomware attacks. I think folks um, are increasingly expected to have thought about ransomware attacks and, and worked that into cyber planning. And I think, you know, Lynn, you and I probably agree on a few 
key elements that that both the government and we would expect are kind of table stakes. It's easy to say, but cybersecurity has to be a corporate priority. Where that lands, I think, is very much open. Companies have, you know, have to have an incident response plan. We encourage companies to test those incident response plans. There are a lot of benchmarks coming out now from some of these security directives, for example, from the Transportation Security Administration, against which you can benchmark your incident response plans. We also recommend that folks know in advance who to contact, who to use for outside counsel, who they're going to use for forensic response, what your insurance situation looks like, and know how to contact law enforcement. We often advise companies with the resources to meet with FBI folks beforehand to build relationships before a ransomware other attack occurs. But Lynn, is that really realistic? I mean, everyone says build a relationship with the FBI, but is that realistic? I think it's very realistic. Local FBI field offices really welcome making connections with companies in their areas of responsibility before something goes wrong. They have a wealth of great information they can provide. The agents there can talk to companies about general security practices, including information security and personnel security and protection against insider threats. The FBI also, in my experience, excels at surging resources to where they are needed. And as assistant director for the cyber division, Brian Vorndren recently testified, um, the FBI is the only agency that can get a well-trained agent to a victim company within an hour. And that's certainly been, again, my experience at the FBI. Quick notification leads to a quick response and faster victim assistance, hopefully even before more damage is done to the victim company, its systems, or its data. So to be a little provocative here, Lynn, what about DHS? I mean, you're an FBI person, and there is a little bit of tension I've seen in the public discussions about incident reporting. For example, on the Hill, the legislation, the White House had to issue some statements clarifying that both agencies are, are going to play a role. Isn't there a tension in the expectation about who to call and work with, right? I when When the Colonial Pipeline CEO got dragged up to Congress after that incident, you know, he got grilled by Congress for only calling the FBI when, in fact, I thought he did the right thing. They called the FBI. They, they did what folks would normally encourage a company to do. So, you know, what about DHS and this, this, uh, re this incident reporting and um, cooperation tension? Well, DHS does have a very important role to play here. And I do think there's confusion in the private sector about who does what within the government. I mean, both DHS and FBI are part of the government. They're all kind of USG, I think, from the private sector perspective. The interagency has done a lot of work in trying to sort out the rules of the road here in terms of who does what. The FBI is responsible for threat response, which means investigating the cyber intrusion, while DHS is responsible for asset response, which means remediation. Um, in my experience, the agencies have a very cooperative relationship and engaging with one means that that agency will let the other agency know. So there's a, a, a free flow of information between the two, irrespective of which entity a company reaches out to in the first instance. So I guess for now, we will treat it as a, a sort of all of the above approach. I've had very good experiences helping clients work with DHS and FBI. So for the for listeners out there, we are not discouraging you from talking to either agency. I think it's a it's a choose your own adventure. 
depending on the issue and the need and, and the relationship. So, Lynn, what else should companies think about in advance? Well, I think they should think about where they are with their cybersecurity posture right now, particularly in light of the heightened threats and geopolitical tensions. Review and follow to the extent applicable recommendations in the CISA playbook. I think that really does establish a standard of care and is a good benchmark for any corporate security program. Use the threat information provided by FBI, CISA, and other agencies to strengthen network defenses and guard against ransomware and other malicious cyber activities. And as we've just talked about, contact the local FBI field office for threat briefings. CISA and the other agencies have, have been offering briefings. I think that's, you know, we saw that in, I think, SolarWinds. We've seen it, you know, some very proactive efforts to get information out broadly to the private sector. Some of these briefings have been classified for companies in the private sector. Uh, we encourage companies to look to trade associations, any sector coordinating councils, ISACs and ISOWs to learn about briefings and see how to participate. Some companies may need to ask the government about securing clearances for key employees uh, in order to make sure you have access to information timely. And we've helped companies access and respond to information shared by the government. You know, I think it can be hard to read minds. And for years, we've been talking about the need for better bi-directional information sharing by the government about whether it's cyber threats, supply chain, nation state activities. So I think getting that information when you can is really important. Even if you don't think it might be immediately actionable, getting that information to your sort of organization is really, really important. I think that's right. The government is interested in sharing classified information with those with a need to know, but as you noted that the clearance process itself is still woefully slow and quite foreign to those who are actually outside of the government. Uh, I think classified briefings will increase as the threats increase, and I think it's an enormously helpful way for the government to help the private sector put these threats in context and really understand the big picture about what's out there. So today, we've looked at ransomware cases, increasing geopolitical tensions over Russia and Ukraine, and what I see as kind of the race to regulate cybersecurity in the private sector. Just in conclusion, Thanks for joining us. We've been working with companies for years to look at a risk management approach, build a reasonable cybersecurity program in the absence of a comprehensive federal law. Uh, we encourage, as you heard on this podcast, companies to look at federal contracting standards, NIST publications, the CISA playbooks, industry best practices, and other sources of, quote, soft law to build effective and importantly, defensible programs when the regulators later come knocking and ask to see what you did to prevent and respond to a, a bad day. These programs have to change in response to new threats and now this regulatory risk from federal and state action. Thank you for joining us on this episode of our Wiley Connected podcast and stay tuned until the next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected podcast brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice.
Transmission is not intended to create, and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.